On this episode of This Week in Linux, we got some new big releases from the Wine Project, LXQt, OS, Mastodon, MythTV, GitT, and many more. We'll also check out some security issue regarding the apt package manager and a potential blunder coming to Chromium-based browsers. Then we'll cover a new really cool utility to control your GPU overclocking on Linux. Later in the show, we'll check out some new Linux hardware and some Linux gaming news. And all that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNU's. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You get all this plus their access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you could use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's only 7 tenths of 1 cent per hour. DigitalOcean also offers 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started with DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that I have recently changed up the graphics for the show. Uh, I got an email or a comment or a tweet or something. I don't remember exactly. But someone sent me a message asking about the logo. The previous version had a, the logo covering up the content. And they asked me to try to change it up to see if they like make it not do that. And at the time, I was kind of confused. I was kind of curious about, you know, what could I make? What changes could I make to improve that sh- the show? And then when they sent that in there, I checked it out, looked it over, and decided to test some things. And I have recently, for the past couple episodes, uh, fifty episode fifty is when I started using this new uh, graphics layout. So if you just listen to the audio version, well, you wouldn't see it anyway. But if you watch the video version, there's a lot of things that are different. Uh, for example, the, the logo is the same size, but I, I changed it so that the logo is no longer covering over the content section. So, like when we when I talk about a particular topic, the web pages will all the all the content you could see would be visible. I also made the webcam larger, and I made a cool well, I think it's cool uh, scrolling distro icon underneath the webcam section. So, I think there's about thirty or so distro icons that are constantly scrolling throughout the whole show. Now, I, I don't really have a particular order that they're in. I just kind of like just put them in a place. And if you don't, if you want, if you don't see a distro that you want there, and you and you know that it has an icon that could be there, because some of them have just text-based icons and that don't really work. But if there is a, like you find you know one that does have an icon that I could put in there, feel free to send me an email or make a comment in this video, and I will you know definitely be interested in adding some more to it because you know, why not? But also let me know what you think about the new graphics layout as well as the distro scrolling icons thing. And just let me know in the comments below or however else you want to let me know because there's Twitter, email, anything else. Anyway, thanks for the suggestions to improve the show. Keep them coming. Anytime, if you have any preferably constructive suggestion, I would definitely love to hear it. So please leave those in the comments below too. So let's get to the show. A version of the show this week is Wine Project has released the 4.0 version of the Wine system. Wine stands for Wine is not an emulator. It technically does some emulation aspects, but it does extra stuff, so it's more of a compatibility layer. Uh, but anyway, Wine is, if you're not aware, Wine is a project that allows you to run Windows binaries inside of a Linux system by essentially kind of tricking this, the, the binaries into thinking that it is Windows. Um, it's it's a lot of uh, it allows a lot of software to work, uh, and it's really cool. But this is a the 4.0 release is really cool because they added Vulkan support. Now this has been this has been in development for like a year or so, and they've had like over 6,000 uh, changes over the course of the entire Wine project. But the Vulkan support is interesting because it's not using DXVK, which is the the current common uh, implementation of Vulkan support, as well as the that is the library that is used in the uh, Steam Play Proton system. So it's kind of interesting that that they're not using the DXVK in order to get some Vulkan support. They're making their own thing. 
And there's been some kind of like miscommunication on the side of the wine project with the DXVK people. So that like, that's kind of why they, they did it them their own. Um, but hopefully they'll, you know, somehow be able to work together and, you know, figure that out. But they also added support for direct D 3d, um, 12, like DirectX 12, as well as controller support and high DBI support. But the high DBI support only report only is related to the Android implementation of wine, not the regular wine. Cause I think the regular wine has some high DBI already. Um, but this is more of a new thing for Android. I could be wrong about the desktop version of high DBI, but this is a really cool version. And if you're wanting, if you want to check out wine, there are a lot of ways to do so. You can check out wine, um, through, from the wine HQ website. And there's also things to like wine tricks to like have installations, or you could use uh, play on Linux, what makes it easier to install wine. So you should check that out. I might have a video uh, in the future talking about how to use play on Linux, um, or other things like that. Maybe even Lutris to set up wine for you, depending on how you want to, how do you, how you want to use it. Uh, there are many, many options. So I have a link to the, this blog post for the latest announcement for, uh, for the wine 4.0 in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the release of LXQt 0.14.0. There's a lot of new release, uh, new uh, features in this release, and you might be wondering why is it 0.14 and not like 1.0 or something. Uh, they're actually holding off on the 1.0 milestone for when they have Wayland support or like when they have full production Wayland support. So that's well, that I'm not sure if they're ever going to change that. You know, they might change it in the future. I don't know, but that's what the developers have stated why it's not called that they also have um if you're not aware let's go ahead and just point it out if you're not aware what lxqt is lxqt is a desktop environment combination between the razor Qt team and the lxde team so they combined they merged their efforts a couple years ago to because they both decided that razor Qt didn't have enough developers to maintain its um its future maintenance Whereas LXDE were in a situation where they had enough developers, but the project itself was on a, it had a big roadblock in the sense of transitioning from GTK2 to GTK3 and having to rewrite the whole thing. So instead, those two uh, projects combined to make LXQt. And LXQt is a really cool uh, desktop environment. It's re- it's lightweight, it's based on Qt, and it's a very modern uh, DE as well. So it's a combination of lightweight and modern. Uh, This latest version added split view support to Pac-Man FM, or sorry, PC-Man FM. I don't know why I said it that way. But PC-Man FM is their file manager made by the user PC-Man. And that is the cute version because there's also a GTK version. So this makes it a lot easier for people to use um, this particular file manager if you like having two uh, folders side by side to be able to like drag and drop to those sections. They also added interactive icons for the desktop, as well as added um, rendering the, the ability to render image EXIF data inside of the LX Image Qt uh, library. They also set it up where the LX Qt config now has controls and settings for the appearance of GTK apps. So if, a, if an application is built, built on GTK previously, you just kind of had to deal with whatever it did. Now you can make some modifications using the LX config system. They also have a new configuration tool that supports uh, touch touchpad settings and better input device handling and a bunch of more things for like um, being able to customize the terminal margins and the history based tab switching and many more. And as well as, you know, lots of updates to their translation system and, and you know, lots of things. If you're interested in learning more about uh, LXQt 0.14 or, you know, finding a link to the latest release for the blog post, um, We'll have a link in the show notes. Speaking of LXQt, the Lubuntu team has announced a new council that they've started. So the Lubuntu team has announced a instead a restructuring of their, I guess their infrastructure of how they govern the project. So on the the blog post they say Lubuntu community has grown exponentially since our switch to LXQt, with new users, contributors and Lubuntu enthusiasts, among many other people who have decided to join our community, we're finding the need to scale the project further than the unwritten technology, the unwritten technically-led oligarchy that we currently have in the Lubuntu project. Therefore, we're pleased to announce the Lubuntu Council. And the Lubuntu Council is a uh, group of people who 
can be kind of like elected and set up to be a part of running the Lubuntu project. And they've actually started, a, they've kind of restructured how they set up it with a new uh, constitution, basically, uh, the Lubuntu constitution, if you will. And it's interesting because they, they specifically in the blog post, they mentioned how the debates around various different projects like the Linux kernel uh, with the code of conduct that happened a few months ago with the Solus team and the void Linux people having to worry about the main developers of the projects or the founders of the projects kind of like vanishing in some cases. Uh, having to worry about this kind of project, they didn't want to ever have to deal with that. So they're they're setting up the constitution so they could transition away from not having to worry. So like so they could have a, a, an infrastructure set in place so that at any time someone needs to leave the project, they could easily be you know replaced and the the access and control could be handed over to someone else in a more smooth way. And I think that's a very uh, really cool to see that their projects are you know using as uh, the the mistakes of the past as an example of how to move forward in the future. And that's very cool to see. So congrats to the Ubuntu team for doing that. And also uh, related to the LXQ topic we just talked about, LXQ 0.14.0 will be available in Lubuntu uh, 1904, which is coming out in April. If you want to try the beta version, uh, that should be out pretty soon. Uh, you can also use the dailies right now because I'm pretty sure it's like in like 12 hours or something, it's going to be available. Um, well, 12 hours from this recording, so based on when you watch it in the, pre the recorded version or the published version, it will already be ready in the dailies, so you can try it out that way. And they also said that they're working on making it possible to use LXQt 0.14.0 in the Lubuntu 18.10 release via the Backports PPA. So they haven't really said is when that will happen, but based on their um, really quick to jump on the release of the latest version to have it available in the next you know, the dailies and stuff like that, I think it'll probably be pretty quick. So if, you want to, if you're interested in checking out, I have a link to Lubuntu's council page as well as a link to uh, their download section to try out the latest version of LXQt if you'd like to. So I have a link that in the show notes. So there's some pretty big news regarding apt this week, and that is a remote code execution vulnerability was found. So Max Justice, who found this posted on his blog, uh, I found a vulnerability in app that allows a network man-in-the-middle or malicious package mirror to execute arbitrary code as root on a machine installing any package. This is unfortunate because by default, apt uses HTTP and not HTTPS for, transit, for the transference of data. Now, if you were to use HTTPS, it would, it would solve part of the issue um, as far as like the the intercepting the current uh, network traffic, if you had HTTPS, you couldn't intercept that traffic because it would be encrypted on both sides, or well, it'd be encrypted through the transaction. Uh, so that, that's possible that like it wouldn't be possible to become a man in the middle unless a a package mirror became malicious or replaced in some way. So that's another that's a completely different thing. But this is not as big as, as big as it seems as far as like uh, potential damage because there's, um, there's already been patched, been made for the, by the app team, and it's been distributed for Debian and Ubuntu, and it's already been available for update. So if you want to update or you have an update on your system, you probably should do so. If you're worried about potential uh, maybe being exploited, you probably won't be if you get it directly from your main repo, which you would automatically, but... It's very unlikely that it would be like a mirror redirect that you'd have to worry about. But if you are worried about it, you can protect yourself by disabling the HTTP redirects while you update. And then if you want to, you can turn them back off or turn or turn turn to the enable it again if you would like to, which allows to have more servers. So it's kind of an issue where some servers will be HTTPS and some won't. So it will limit the amount of servers you can do. And the argument of having HTTP versus HTTPS is the transaction with an HTTPS is encrypted for the traffic being sent back and forth. But it's not for the HTTP. And the theory is that if it's just you know, downloading a file, it's not that big of an issue because basically it happens the same way with downloading ISOs. If you download an ISO from a distribution, you're probably going to get an HTTP, not an HTTPS. It's possible, but not likely. So... If you're just downloading data, the idea is that you don't have to worry about it as long as their servers are protected. If it's not protected and, they, and there somehow gets, um, you know, some malicious actor 
gets onto their servers and replaces these files, that could be a big problem. But there's another, you know, silver lining a little bit because there's another system that kind of compensates for this issue, and that's the signatures of all packages. So your system knows what the signature should be based on the previous updates that it had. And if you try to install a system or try to install a package that does has the wrong signature, like say they tried to input a crypto miner in the package or something like that, it would be a different signature because there's a different code than what the server is actually expecting or what the computer is actually expecting. So it would make it where it wouldn't necessarily work. Now, if you were to have both sides have been, you know, manipulated in some way, well, then those signatures wouldn't really do anything. So the argument would be, should you use HTTPS or HTTP? And a lot of distros have been switching to HTTPS. Uh, for example, OpenSUSE has and Fedora has done so. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, that's the only two. Those are the only two that I know for sure that have done it. Um, I think there might be another one. I think Arch might be doing it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyway, it's it's probably something they should you know consider changing to because especially with Let's Encrypt. It wouldn't really. It wouldn't be cost. Cost. It wouldn't cost anything to do it, but it would be a potential maintenance problem because it would mean some servers would not be supported uh, because not everybody's going to have uh, access to HTTPS. So because because the way that distributions work with packages um, package availability, they're on multiple different servers across the world, and not everyone has access to a server administrator who can manage maintain the the SSL certificates so it kind of creates a bottleneck there uh, but overall hopefully you know we're in a basically in a transition period where you know even browsers are requiring or letting you know the second you go to a browser or go to a website that doesn't have https um, it might you know you know hopefully it's possible to make it more uh, make the switch more reasonably close soon if not um just so you know, you need to update your packet, your version of apt in your system so you don't have to worry about the particular vulnerability. Uh, the Debian Security Advisory uh, posted on it on their basically their announcement of acknowledging this problem as well as updating uh, Debian because Debian 9.7 has this fix. And in the message, they said that the code handling HTTP redirects and the HTTP transport method doesn't properly sanitize fields transmitted over the wire. This vulnerability could be used by an attacker located as a man in the middle between apt and a mirror to inject malicious content in the HTTP connection. So it's unlikely. It's been fixed. It's not that big of a deal. But because it's Debian and because it's apt, it's going to get a lot of attention. And that's why I put it in the show, just to let you know that it's not as much of a problem as it might seem, but you still need to update your system. So go do that. This past episode of Destination Linux, we had a very special guest. We interviewed Bo Weaver, who is a penetration tester, or hacker, about his job and all sorts of Linux security-related topics. And Bo mentioned in the show that he uses Kali Linux, which we talked about in a previous episode, uh, last episode, or the one before, two before, anyway. But another great timing was the latest release of Parrot OS has just been announced, and that is version 4.5. So Parrot OS 4.5 is based on Debian, and it uses either Mate or the KDE Plasma DE. So you, and there's a lot of lot of changes when it, it's a the it's not like a huge major change as far as the version goes, but there's a lot of changes in actual code. So for example, they now have experimental desktop uh, virtual appliance support with a OVA format, so you can make it where you can import Parrot OS into a virtual box easier. Uh, they've updated their kernel to 4.19, and they've also updated Metasploit to 5.0, which is a topic we talked about two episodes ago for Metasploit 5.0. You can learn more about that particular topic in a previous episode. I'll have that linked in the show notes. And also, they've updated some meta packages for developers like uh, VS, VS Codium, an advanced uh, extendable text editor, Zeal, which is an offline documentation downloader and browser, and it's a you know it's a nice name I like it. It's got Zeal. Anyway, Gitcola has also been updated as well as Meld and Tora. Meld is a really cool project. I like it. It's a um, it's like a difference inspector. So um, 
you basically have a directory or a, a file uh, or a bunch of files and you could say, say find out what's the difference between the two so if you have multiple duplicates you could see like mainly it's a version control system that allows you to see the difference between very similar files and allow you to move certain features from one file to another or not features but data from one file to another in a much easier way than just you, you know manually doing it and it also allows you to do it through a GUI which is very nice They've also done many more updates and patches and fixes and all kinds of stuff. But one thing they did do that might be bothersome to some people, I think it's not really that big a deal, but might be to some, is that they are no longer going to be supporting 32-bit architecture images for Peridot So if that bothers you, then uh, sorry for that news, but Peridot 4.5 is very cool. And another cool thing about Peridot is that in the visuals on the show and the the video version of the show you'll see that it says the home edition what's cool is that Parrot OS has the penetration version as well as the home edition so you can use the same OS as your daily driver as well as your pen testing solution without having to worry about customizing the pen testing solution to you know be more reasonably usable as a daily driver because you're not supposed to use any pen testing or hacking distribution as a daily driver because they're specifically designed to not be done like that and they'll even say in their frequently asked questions don't do that but Parrot OS decided to make a home edition so it allows people who wanted to have parity between their main system as well as their pen testing to have that so that's very cool if you'd like to check out more about Parrot OS I'll have a link in the show notes another unfortunate situation happened with Manjaro it's also not as bad as it sounds, but uh, it might be bad if you are not familiar with using a rolling release. So th- what happened was basically there was a, a, a situation where system D, uh, a system D package was being upgraded that wasn't packaged with a right version. So for example, uh, the 2.39 or the, the 239.3XX-X, X is just a, uh, a variable to imply any any number it could be any number anyway that version or that set of version is not compiled against the new lib idn2 package in manjaro which created a issue where if you upgraded your system and got the wrong version of systemd it would uh, essentially make your system not boot anymore so in order to fix it users needed to downgrade their systemd package to a previous version that didn't have this issue they have currently fixed the issue and patched a new version. So if you were to upgrade your system now, the systemd package would be fixed in a... Basically, it's a way that it, it tricks the system into saying that it's the right version, even though it's a newer version. Um, so technically, you wouldn't have this problem anymore. But if you already have updated and have an issue with it being broken, I'll, have a, I'll provide a link in the show notes that explains how to fix it. And also, I wanted to talk about this particular topic because... Uh, Manjaro is known, I've seen it many times on various different YouTubers, various different podcasts, talking about Manjaro being a beginner-friendly distro. And it's not, because it's it's a rolling release system. And by default, a rolling release system isn't really user-friendly. Because you have to, if something like this happens, and you didn't know how to fix it, then you just have a broken system. So most rolling release distributions have a certain level of requirement for experience that they would say that you need to have in order to use their system. Like Arch, for example, says uh, a certain level, like an intermediate user is who they're focusing on as far as like if you if you can't figure out the problem with your, by yourself, then you shouldn't use Arch. And Manjaro is based on Arch. So they're kind of it's kind of trying to be like a hybrid approach where they want people who are not as experienced to use it, but at the same time... That's kind. That can be a it can backfire for the user. So, while I have nothing against Mandro, and I think they a lot of the stuff they do is very cool, I do want to say that if you are a beginner to Linux, do not try anything based on Arch or anything that's rolling released, because it, it could go badly, and then you would kind of be stuck. Because if you didn't know anyone who could fix it or have access to the forum, because you only have one computer, then you your system wouldn't run. It could be a it could be a bad thing. So while this is not really that big of an issue and it's already been fixed, it's a good example to say have like a public service announcement of saying if you are brand new to Linux, use something that's more tailored to new users, like something based on Ubuntu or Ubuntu themselves. So yeah, that's it. 
Sorry, I was kind of like on a soapbox, but anyway, if you like to learn more, I'll have a post to the forum post as well as some stuff like on Reddit and some conversations about this particular topic for their uh, the system D downgrade thing that they had to deal with. I have those. I have all those in the show notes. Up next, Canonical has announced that MultiPass 0.5.5 has been wait 0.5.0 has been released. And this is the first version that's out of uh, private beta. So it's now in public beta. So if you wanted to try it out, you can. And what MultiPass is, it's a service to manage Linux virtual machines inside of Windows 10. While there are other options like WSL, the What Windows subsystem for Linux, it comes with cer- those come with certain limitations because they don't have a Linux kernel and they're more of a compatibility layer rather than an actual system. So what this does is it provides a command line interface and t- and uh, takes like seconds to refresh images, but the the main thing is it allows a full system. So you can ha- this it allows you to have um, a, a, a system with a full kernel and command line functionality. You also get really quick updates as well as uh, users can uh, use commands and scripts built into the system. It's kind of it's more designed for like corporate environments. Um, so if you're if you wanted to use Windows 10, but you also wanted to have the modularity of Linux, this would allow you to do so in a, a virtual machine structure. And MultiPass allows you to manage those those virtual machines in a much in a really easy to well, fair, you know, relatively easy uh, method of managing those things. So it's really cool. And if you are interested in checking it out, I'll have a link in the show notes to MultiPass 0.5.0. Up next in the show is the release 2.7 Mastodon. If you're not aware, Mastodon is a social network. It's a decentralized, federated social network that is similar to Twitter. Now, on Mastodon is kind of it's it's interesting because there's multiple different instances of Mastodon that you can join rather than just one, you know, Twitter account. You can have multiple Mastodon accounts, or you can have one Mastodon account that connects to various different uh, servers instances via the federation system it's very cool and I, i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do a video about mastodon talk about it and what what, what the benefits are and the you know the cons of course because there are some but uh, if you are interested and you already use mastodon i'll have a link in the show notes to where you can follow myself as well as the show uh, and you could go to tuxdigital.com slash mastodon to follow the channel as, as well as you go to tuxdigital.com slash contact to get the other social networking information for you know, the show, the channel, myself, etc. Anyway, moving on, Mastodon 2.7 is consists of over 370 commits by over 30 com- contributors, so that's quite a bit for just a few months. Uh, that's actually since uh, late October, early November. And one of the new features that is pretty cool is the profile directory that users can opt into. The directory allows you to see at a glance active posters on a given Mastodon server and filter them by hashtags. And you can do that by putting it in your profile. So if you were to put a hashtag in your profile, for example, you were to put hashtag Linux or hashtag Tux Digital or something like that, you could also find other people on a variety of different servers based on that individual hashtag in their bio. So let's say, for example, you are on linuxrocks.online and someone else is on mastodon.technology or mastodon.social. You could search specifically for people who have those hashtags in their bio and be able to just follow those people regardless of what server they're on. So that's a very nice update. Uh, and that I've, I mean, it's, it's very nice to see the more integration with the different instances because Mastodon's uh, biggest issue is that it's hard to discover people on Mastodon. So it's really cool that you can follow people, but you kind of have to already know where they are. They're not very good at about discoverability as far as Mastodon goes, but they are working on that, which is really cool. But once you have followed people, it is really nice to use. So check it out if you're interested. But another thing that they did is that they improved the tutorial system. So if you've never used Mastodon, the latest version 2.7 has an improved tutorial. Now this would require the instances to update their system to 2.7 before you see the new tutorial. Uh, But hopefully that will be pretty soon for most of them. 
Um, but you know, there's really no way to tell which, like which system or instance will be updated first or whatever. But if you want to see the tutorial, that would be Mastodon. That social will be the easiest one because that's like the main official one. Now that might give you a suggestion to sign up for Mastodon.social, which you can. Um, but there is another problem with that is that the way Mastodon works is that there's this, um, this timeline and the timeline is based on the local timeline, which is your instance, the federated server timeline of all instances. And sometimes there can be a ton of noise. Well, the social timeline or the local timeline, I mean, uh, has a ton of noise on Mastodon.social. So if you don't want to have that kind of stuff, you want a specific instance that's related to a certain topic, for example, Linux, LinuxRocks.online is a good option for that. But I don't know when that's going to be updated for the tutorial. Anyway, there's also a ton of other features. Um, I'm not going to go into all of them because that would make this, this section of the show really long or the show really long entirely. So I'll cover a full... Uh, version of Mastodon, like a video specifically about Mastodon. If you're interested, just leave a comment below or send me an email. Let me know uh, whether you're interested about that or in the live chat room if you are watching live. Um, but anyway, there are some cool things about new warning system for moderation because it used to be you'd only get notified by just going to the server and you being kicked out. Uh, so now you can actually be warned about it. And they got new updates to their like profile public hash page, hashtag page. So instances could show um, like the most popular hashtags at a time, kind of like how a trending page that tw Twitter has, it allows each instance to have their own tw tw uh, trending hashtag page. So that's actually very nice because it allows them much more discoverability and, uh, you know, broad discussion. So I like that. Anyway, I'll have the link to the rest of the, uh, the information about the latest version of Mastodon in the show notes below. Up next is the latest release of Myth TV, which is version 30 or 30.0. So Myth TV is a, if you're not aware, is a free open source software digital video recorder project, or DVR, and it's released under the GPL. It's been around for quite a long time, since uh, 2002. It's been under quite heavy development, and it's basically, you know, it, it, can get, it provides everything you'd expect from a DVR, and maybe some things that you wouldn't expect, because it has a, a plug-in architecture system that's built into it. Um, but anyway, let's get to the, the version 30. The latest release has over four, 500 commits that they say makes significant improvements to the infrastructure and that most of these changes are invisible to the end user. So they're like library improvements and uh, stuff that's not like interface or user, uh, user focused, I guess, more of a back end focus. Um, one of those things, though, is they've updated the front end, the myth front end package to support the Android TV devices. So you can now use Myth TV on NVIDIA Shield, Amazon Fire TV 4K, and many more things. They've also added support for some libraries like the Lib Sample Rate, Lib HD Home Run Library, and Lib Blu-ray, so you can now support Blu-ray's uh, playback. They also uh, suggest that you definitely make a backup to your database if you were to try, try to use it, because they don't think that they think that it will be, it's upgradable, uh, like, there's basically it's like almost the entire system. So like I think the version 20 to 30, you can update. So as long as you've had, you know, the latest release and I think actually it might be even older than that. They, they support upgrading. So you'll probably be fine, but make a backup anyway, just in case. But they've also done some stuff like they've removed some libraries, like they removed libraries for Qt4 because it's been deprecated. So it kind of makes sense. And also some of the other libraries, um, but if you're not familiar with Myth TV, I wanted to talk about a couple of features. Because Myth TV is pretty cool. So Myth TV started out as just DVR, but it kind of can work as a media center now. Um, it has both a server and client architecture, so you can use it. Um, you can actually just install both and use it on the same machine, or you could have a server that runs the Myth TV database and all that stuff, then have multiple clients that allow it to connect to that server. So it's pretty cool, and it gives that. It's kind of like uh, think Cody, but instead of having Cody and also another uh, database system that uh, runs on a server, um, it allows you to do you know a separate structure. Uh, whereas Cody does have its own database system, but it's more of a locally used media center. You have to provide your own separate server kind of thing. Uh, but 
Uh, Myth TV has a lot of cool features as, as far as like um, it has support for um, a plugin architecture, like I mentioned, which allows you to use various different things to you do photo viewer, uh, music collection management. Uh, it even has integration with the Zone Minder project, which is like a home security system. So there's a lot of cool stuff that Myth TV can do. Um, if you are interested, I'll have a link to the show notes. You can check it out. Uh, one of the things that I really like about uh, the Myth TV is that it has uh, the DVR system has automatic commercial detection, so you can just have it like automatically skip commercials while you're watching it through the Myth TV database. Uh, so that's that's pretty cool. Anyway, again, if you'd like to check it out, I have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a pretty cool utility called GoTop. It's a terminal-based system monitor. It works on Linux and Mac, if you like that sort of thing. The software, they say, is inspired by GTOP and VTOP, but while these two utilities use Node.js, GoTop is written in Go, which is nice. So it's not as heavy as a Node.js system. Um, it's kind of like a graphical representation of HTOP. Uh, instead of just being like a table system, it is a nice uh, graphical thing. Where you got, you got uh, well, you got graphs, <laughs> and you got uh, a very nice layout like bar system as well. Uh, they basically the command line tool supports mouse clicking and scrolling. It comes with VI keys, so like Vim support. Um, not really Vim, but you know, this is essentially the same thing. I know I'm going to get a ton of hate for that. Anyway, it displays the CPU, memory, network usage, history, uh, using nice colored graphs, and it also displays the current values as well as just the history values. Uh, so you can also see uh, the disk usage that you have, temperatures of your CPU, uh, process list, and it also includes uh, memory usage as well as not just CPU usage. So very cool, um, very cool features. It's, a, it's, it's fairly new. Uh, but it, it look it's a it's a really nice system if you're interested in checking out. I have a link in the show notes. Uh, but another thing that they also have is a built-in color schemes, and they support Monokai color scheme, which is really cool. Monokai, I don't know. Anyway, it's a really nice color scheme that I like, and basically turn everything into that. Um, so it's a nice dark. It's a nice dark theme that has also really nice like pastel highlights. So if you're in checking, you're interested in checking it out. Uh, Monokai is M-O-N-O-K-A-I. Uh, you just Google that, and you'll see you'll see what the palette looks like. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Uh, GoTop uh, has options to not only just show the CPU, but you can also like specifically pick out which widgets you want to show. So you can only show CPU, uh, memory process widgets, or you could show other things. So like options to show each CPU or the average CPU, like if you have multiple cores. Um, and you can also choose to show the temperatures in Fahrenheit instead of Celsius. But the more common thing to you do is using Celsius. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this GoTop terminal graphical system monitor, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is GitT 1.7.0. GitT is a self-hosted Git service, and it's a project for self-hosting your own Git service. They call it the Git, Git with a cup of tea. And GitT is a community-managed fork of GOGS. The, uh, it's a lightweight code hosting solution written in Go and published under the MIT license. If you're not a familiar, GitT um, essentially is, is a similar to GitLab, but a much more lightweight system. Um, I'll, I'll talk about like the differences, like, well, which one would be better in a minute. But GitT is forked from the GOGS project. And if you're if you're curious, uh, GitT is a community fork of the pop, the the self-hosted GOG service, and they did so because the GOG project was maintained by a single maintainer who had you know basically didn't want to provide uh, commit power or patch system or patch power to other people. So like having control over submitting commits and and stuff, they didn't want to do that. And uh, you know, fair enough. It's their project. They, you know, they're welcome to have that philosophy. But also, because it's open source, the community is welcome to have the philosophy of we're going to fork it. So they forked it and made GitT. And GitT works in a much different way because they have a three-owner system. But the owners are actually elected by the community. So if one of the owners is not pulling their weight or not you know, trying to change things that the rest of the community don't want, they can be replaced 
um, you know, once a year in general, but they can also be removed if they are uh, malicious or not malicious, but if they're detriment to the project. So it's really cool because they have a, um, a owner system that is specifically elected. And they also have a maintainer system that can be open to anybody with just simple voting to get contributions accepted into the, uh, the roles. So very cool system. And it's a nice way of uh, basically saying, you know, some projects are designed to be, you know, a single developer. So that kind of happens. And they're usually at a certain level where they don't grow that quickly. But if a community like latches onto that project and then that project still refuses to allow them to help, um, it's really, it's going to happen. They're going to get forked if it's open source, of course. And in this case, Git T did do that. And Git T actually is probably the better option in the, of the two at this point. So if you were interested in using a lightweight Git service or a self-hosted Git service, Git T is a very, a very good option to check out, um, especially considering they care about the, um, the uh, activity and the development of the project much more um, attention to detail than the GOGS team does. Because, I mean, even an example of a remote code execution was found inside of both Git T and GOGS. And Git T has patched it already, and we're still waiting for the GOGS team to do so. They have worked on it to patch it, but they haven't released a patch yet. Whereas the Git T team released it within like a couple days or so of being notified. So that's cool. Anyway, the latest version of Git T of 1.7.0 added a new action heat map, which is very cool because you can see this on your, like your, once you log in, you see like a front page of like all your activity. And they've also added a new review summary and pull requests. And they've added new milestone, system, milestone issues and pull requests. Um, they've also done a lot of cool, st cool stuff with the progressive uh, web app structure. So if you haven't heard, Progressive Web App is like a mobile web app that makes it makes your like, Android phones be able to set up a web app as, as if it's an app. So this allows you to use your Git T web app or web website like homepage as a native app to Android. So that's very cool that they add that support. And there's a bunch of other things like uh, you can now can you create uh, ability to have a user uh, link to a PR after they push a new commit and a variety of other things. I wanted to talk about the difference between Git T and GitLab. So GitLab is an open source Git service in the same way that Git T is. However, GitLab is much more robust and Git T is much more lightweight. So if you were if you were like a single person or like maybe a couple people, then Git T is a very good option because it allows you to have a very small team or a very, you know, like individual thing, but it, so you can still have the, all the features of Git, but at the same time have a very lightweight approach to it. If you are for a big team of people or you're a company or an enterprise approach, GitLab would be a much better option because you have much more permission control and you have uh, it's more uh, robust in its feature set. So there's that. Like I think Git T would be a great a great option for someone who wanted to like let's say a Linux user wanted to create a Git instance of their config system. So like, let's say you make a ton of configurations of your system and you wanted to restore them at a later date on a new system. Once you do like an update, you could use Git to pull and push the new the changes in your configs and then use Git T to manage all that. So that's a good option. And if you'd like to learn more about Git T, I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next is a really cool utility that's brand new to the you know ecosystem, I guess. Uh, well, it's brand new to me at least. Uh, and based on the version number, I assume it's also brand new just in general because it's 0.0.1. Uh, but anyway, TuxClocker is a Qt-based or Qt interface GPU overclocking GUI utility. So it's a utility that makes it as easy as possible to overclock on Linux is what they, they, they describe it as. So their goal was to make it as easy as possible as it can be compared to like a Windows utility to overclock your GPU. And they, they actually want suggestions, and if you can, of course, if you can do coding and help out, they'd like that too, but they want suggestions of how, like if you use overclocking GPU on Windows, they would like you to give you like suggestions of how they can improve their system too. But the features, the features that are involved in this uh, tool are GPU monitoring, overclocking, overvolting, change the power limit, you can do custom fan curve, 
and you can have a, a different fan mode selections as well as have different profiles for your GPU's uh, performance. Now there's, there is a, uh, a little bit of an issue. If you're an AMD user, it doesn't support AMD yet. Um, however, they do have it on their roadmap to potentially, or they, well, they, they do have it planned that they will support AMD in the future, as well as having multiple GPUs in the same machine. So this is a very cool thing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a screenshot to show you in the video, but it looks pretty nice too because it uses the Qt uh, toolkit. So uh, there's a, I'll have a screenshot in the show notes, but it does look pretty good too. So if you are interested in doing some overclocking on your NVIDIA, only NVIDIA right now, it supports NVIDIA 600 series and above. So if, if you have like um, a 650 or something like that, you'll still have... Uh, you'll have a support for that or like 650 or higher or, you know, etc. So if you do have one of those and you are interested in overclocking, then give it a shot if you'd like. The Tux Clocker Cute Base GPU Overclocking Utility. I have a link to it in the show notes. Up next in the show is a new Docker tool that allows you to build container images via Docker. It's a cool tool. I like it. It's it's a cool utility. I'm glad that they made it, and it makes it easier to build Docker images. Uh, but to be honest, the reason I added it to the show is because it's called Doctor. It's a Docker tool called Doctor. D-O-C-K-T-E-R. Yep. That's a weird reason to add it. I know. Sorry. But it's a pretty cool tool, too. It allows you to create reproducible computing environments via Docker. Um that's a you know keyword friendly description. It allows you to create uh, reproducible Docker images, and those can be pretty difficult, especially if you don't really know how to write Docker files. Even if you do, it can still be difficult. Uh, but Docker makes it easier, and uh, it's specifically made for researchers. Uh, that's how they, they describe it. They they say that it's um, made it to easily allow to create Docker images for their research projects. So you can create a Docker image and uh, create a Docker file in your project and then have Docker uh, build it from that file and based on your source code. What's really cool is that Docker can scan your project and build a custom Docker image for it. So what it does is that if you already have a Docker file in your project, it will use it, but if it doesn't have one, it will scan your source code files in the folder and generate a Docker file for you. Uh, it currently only supports um, Python, R language, and Node.js source code. One of the, um, you know, the biggest issues and the biggest headaches of using the, you know, building and writing Docker files is figuring out like system dependencies. So, if you don't know what the system dependencies are, it basically would take trial and error to figure it out. What's really cool about this is that it can automatically check if any of your dependencies or dependencies of dependencies and so on, requires system packages and installs those into the image as well. So it has a like automatic dependency checking. This is very nice. So it allows you to uh, do uh, performance or perform static code analysis for multiple languages to determine package requirements, uses package databases to determine package system dependencies, installs languages package dependencies much quicker because it, it uses the like the built-in library language structure of the whatever language you're using to optimize that. So it's a really cool project. If you are working with Docker in any way, it would be definitely something to check out. So I have a link to Docker in the show notes. Up next in the show is some good news from Dell. Uh, Barton George posted on his blog post, right, on his blog, that the XPS 13 9380 Developer Edition is now available. Uh, you know, the great naming thing that these companies have is always... Anyway, the Dell XPS, 9, XPS 9380 is basically just an, in, an incremental upgrade to the previous generation of the 9370. But this one comes with an updated version of Ubuntu as well with an 18.04 uh, LTS. And it also has a, um, a newer version of the processor with the Intel Whiskey Lake. And, but the biggest, the biggest news for this laptop is that they're moving the web camera. So the webcam is no longer going to be at the bottom of the screen. Why was it at the bottom of the screen? Now it's going to be at the top of the screen, which is a much better location for a webcam on a laptop. Because otherwise you're looking up your nose 
if it's at the bottom of the screen. It should be at the top, always at the top. Anyway, the next this version of the XPS will have it at the top. So that is a very good news for anyone who's interested in checking it out because the, the XPS, XPS is a very slick looking laptop and it's super powerful. Um, it's it's reasonably priced for the power as well as the, the, the Ultrabook form factor. Uh, so if you're interested, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, I think this is a really nice looking laptop and it's nice to have the webcam in the place that it should be. Up next in the show, we're going to move from having good news about the Dell hardware to some not-so-good news, or potentially not-so-good news, because technically it's not solidified, but, you know. Google is working on the new Chrome extension manifest, version 3, and this defines the capability of Chrome's extensions platform. The updated manifest is available as a draft right now, and uh, it's not good. There's some things that they're talking about removing certain APIs, which will break some pretty important applications, or, well, extensions. Some pretty important extensions it'll break. So Raymond Hill, or also known as Gore Hill, um, he's the author of the really popular uh, ad blockers, uBlock Origin and uMatrix, which are both really nice if you need an ad blocker. Don't get uBlock, get uBlock Origin. That's a very thing, to, uh, very important thing to specify. So he's voiced his concern over some of these plan changes. He says that um, you know basically if they're implemented, it'll uh, the as they're proposed, then it will remove functionality that the extensions use to do the content blocking. So Google plans to remove blocking options from the Web Request API, and ask developers to use declarative net request instead. One of the main issues with the suggested change is that. It's it made to support AdBlock Plus compatibility filters only, and it also limits filters to thirty thousand uh, maximum. Hill mentioned on Google's bug tracking site that the change would end his extensions entirely. It would make them not work. So uBlock Origin and uMatrix for Google Chrome would no longer exist because it it would be possible to switch to the new functionality. It's too limiting and would cripple the existing functionality of the content blocking extensions. So he says if this declarative next net request API ends up being the only way to content block, uh, the only way they can they can accomplish their the duty of content blocking, then essentially it means that these two content blockers I have maintained for years, uBlock Origin and uMatrix can no longer exist. There are other features which I understand are appreciated by many uh, many users which can't be implemented with the new or the declarative net request API. For example, the blocking of media elements, which are larger than a set size, the disabling of JavaScript execution through injection of CP, CSP directives, the removal of outgoing cookie headers, and many more things. All of these can be set to override a less specific setting. One could choose to globally block large media elements, but allow them on a few specific sites, and so on. But these rules will, if these, but there's the the main thing is that because of these changes, it would limit the amount of things that the that the extensions can do. The as far as features wise, it limits the amount of things that they're allowed to do as far as how many you could, how many changes, how many blocks elements you can block, that the API will allow you to do so, and it effectively makes them not usable. So. It could potentially make people stop using Chrome. You know, the people who use AdBlock on Chrome or use uBlock or uMatrix on Chrome would have to find something else. And at this point, it would probably be Firefox, which would be a good option now anyway, just to kind of like, you know, head it off at the pass, just switch to Firefox. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how Opera, Vivaldi, Brave, and the other Chromium-based browsers, you know, react to this. Because if if they go through with this manifest change, it also means that all of those browsers, like Opera, Vivaldi, Brave, etc., all of those browsers would no longer be able to do to use these extensions either. So um, I'm curious to see what happens. And uh, if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the GitHub issues that discussed um, the particular change, as well as the manifest document, and even the thread about the issue from the do from the document in the show notes below. And finally this week, we have a lot of Humble Bundles. We have some game bundles, book bundles, and even a comic bundle. The latest Humble Bundle from the, is the games is the, called the Caffeine Bundle. 
It's a really nice selection of Linux games. And the first up, the one of the things like really awesome game that you should definitely check out is called This War of Mine. Uh, there's also a bunch of the stuff like the Pillars of Earth, uh, Goner, uh, Tyranny, Shadow Tactics, and some other and some many and some other ones that are Windows only. But you know the the ones that are Linux based are enough. But I think This War of Mine is a fantastic idea game. Like just the concept itself is really cool. So it's a it's a a 2D platformer. That has some 3D elements, but it's a 2D platformer that has, um, it's a concept of, the I'm, idea, the, the idea is you are a, just an average citizen that is in a war-torn country, and you're trying to survive in the, in the war. So the idea is that, you know, most war games are, um, you know, you're on one side battling the other side. Whereas this is a game where you are a citizen, just an average average citizen who's has to deal with um, creating alliances uh, of like because basically your your country's war torn and you're having to to scrounge and scavenge for food and supplies and all all the kinds of things like that. And it is a really really interesting game that you should check out if you're interested in that. Uh, I think it's really cool. They also have the books bundle. And the books bundle is for computer music. So if you want to learn about making uh, computer music, whether you want to look at vocal aesthetics, uh, computer th- computer synthesis, uh, audio audio programming, composing interactive music, machine musicianship, which is pretty cool, uh, you can learn all about that with the books bundle from Humble Bundle as well. And they have a comics bundle. The comics bundle is from the Dynamite uh, Dynamite Publishing Company. And this is, they got a lot of cool stuff on here. So they, they allow you to get some, uh, a huge tier of comic books. Now, I want to talk about a few of them because there's some really cool ones. Uh, Red Sonia is one. It's a, kind of a classic, uh, a classic comic. Uh, Army of Darkness. Battlestar Galactica. Uh, both they both have Battlestar Galactica from like the reboot from 2004, but also from the original Battlestar Galactica from the 70s. If you didn't know that there is an original Battlestar Galactica and you only knew about the reboots from the 2000s, you should definitely go back and check out the one from the 70s because if you take the concept, uh, this is completely different sidetracked. I just got sidetracked, but if you check out the 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 show from the 70s, it's like late 78 or so. Uh, Look at the like the the special effects in that show is amazing for the time. Like you compare that to, you know, like Star Trek or Star Wars in the era, like it's amazing. Like it's basically like Star Wars level with graphics on a TV show or special effects on a TV show in the seventies. It's it's impressive. Anyway, you can get a comic book related to that version of it as well as the updated version. Also, they have Dresden Files. Um, they have Kevin Smith's Green Hornet uh, run, which is pretty good, and they also have another one called The Boys, which is a really interesting uh, comic book because it's about it's essentially about a group of people who are in a gang that are like like battling each other, but they all have superpowers, so it's interesting. They're actually going to make a movie based on that comic book too. Uh, they, they announced that they're going to, they haven't announced a release date yet that I know of, but they're going to make a movie on that too. So if you want to check it out before they make the movie, then that'll be a part of the bundle. So the humble bundles for both comic books, books, and games will be linked in the show notes below. All of these bundles are, all these links will be affiliate links. So if you were to decide to purchase one of these, I'll have the, the link in the show notes will be giving a small percentage commission from Humble Bundle to Tux Digital. Um, so it would be just, you know, it's one of those, when I, in, the, in the outro, I'll mention that, like every episode I mentioned that the we have affiliate links. So if you want to uh, purchase something with no additional cost, you can support the channel by, you know, using affiliate links. And the Humble Bundles will be some of those links. So if you're interested, please use those links. I would appreciate it. I'll have a link to, uh, link to all three of these in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. 
You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some good news to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. Just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, so join us in the live, the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.